Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. So, Allie, I want to start this off by asking you a question. Have you ever deleted something from the Internet? Um, hmm. Ever deleted a tweet? I've probably deleted some old tweets. What, what about, like, an unflattering photo or, or, like, a photo of a friend who's fallen from grace? Hmm. I might plead the fifth on this. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. Have you ever deleted anything from the Internet? Oh, gosh. Uh... What about pictures? Have you ever deleted pictures from the internet? Not that I can really think of. Uh, my, my, my first ever Instagram post was of a, a particularly attractive kabocha squash that I found at, at a farmer's market that I, I felt like I just needed to memorialize. Just the squash, or were you also in the picture? No, it was just the, it was just the, uh, the squash. <laughs> if we're talking, though, about candidates deleting things from the internet... We have to talk about Texas Republican Troy Nels. So... In his Republican primary, this candidate for Congress, he went all in for Trump. And won, by the way, against none other than a Bush in Texas, Pierce Bush. And now that he's won, poof. He's now erasing Trump from his campaign website. It was like he pressed the delete button. Yeah. So this is funny. It's very funny for a number of reasons. There's this high school quality about it. And it's absurd. We, we love the absurd in politics. But the reason why it catches the eye in particular this week is that it speaks to something we're seeing in the 2020 elections right now. Uh, Republican candidates for Congress are growing increasingly concerned about a bad November coming their way. And that's because President Donald Trump is turning into a problem for the Republican Party, even in places he won fairly handily in 2016. So Ali Mutnick is here to talk about the 2020 elections and the sticky situation Republicans like Troy Nels are finding themselves in. I'm Scott Bland, and this is NerdCast. There is definitely growing fear among Republicans that Trump is tanking in the suburbs and he's taking them down with it. And even if he won your district by a huge margin in 2016, he may not be winning it by that same margin and you may be in trouble. And it's to the point that it's generated this like public-private split screen among top Republicans in terms of what, what they're talking about in, in terms of what's possible in the election in 2020, right? Yeah, exactly. Like Republicans, Kevin McCarthy are publicly like, we're taking the House back. We have these great candidates. Um, And I think there's this feeling that like 2018 was rock bottom, that they lost 40 seats and that they're not going to lose anymore. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely now this like persistent chatter that I was trying to get at in this story that people are worried, you know, if you go too far on offense, if you're too aggressive and trying to flip back seats and the bottom falls out, you leave a ton of people unprotected. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty much an iron law of politics at this point that like however bad you think it is for your political party, you will one day see worse. Yeah. The contours of the House kind of speak in a particularly strong way to... President Trump's weaknesses because a lot of these districts that, that Republicans hold in states like Texas 
and let's see, Indiana, there were a few other states where, where there are some unusual Democratic targets this year. They were drawn with this Republican coalition in mind centered around the suburbs that, that Trump has kind of driven a stake through, basically. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, you saw that start to come apart in 2018, even seats that were like actually gerrymandered to elect Republicans like in Illinois and outside of Chicago. If you break apart those sort of like white affluent suburban voters who were like, you know, unthinkably always Republican, if they're now starting to vote Democratic, that opened up a lot of targets for Democrats in 2018. And if that trend continues as it is, because Trump's numbers are still so bad, because his rhetoric on the coronavirus especially is still really polarizing, like there's a whole other outer tier of seats that could fall. I think people are starting to see that. Yeah. Can you describe some of them to us? I mean, you know, we're seeing kind of like, what, like outer ring suburbs in some pretty big cities that used to be, this used to be like, kind of, it would typify Republican territory. Yeah, so Indianapolis is a great example. The Indianapolis five seat that Trump won by 12 points, uh, Democrats have put out a poll showing that their candidate is up six points there. Hold on, I'm pulling up my master spreadsheet of polls so I can give you some interesting ones. <laughs> I mean, so take all these with a grain of salt, right? Because we're three months out from election day. But Democrats have put out three polls in Texas 3, which is Van Taylor, Texas 6, which is Ron Wright, and Texas 25, which is Roger Williams. Trump won those by 12, 13, 14 points, and they're showing single-digit races there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we always want to take internal polls with a grain of salt. But, I, you know, I think the other, not only did Trump win there in, in 2016, these were not seats that were really on the radar for Democrats in 2018, which ended up being a big wave for them to take back the House. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's thinking that, like, probably not going to win Texas 25, no matter what your internal polling shows. But if it looks shaky there, then is there some kind of middling target that you can get at? Or do you just scare Republicans by pushing out a bunch of polls or, you know, having your candidates raise a ton of money and force them to waste kind of time and energy fretting about do we need to spend there? get the incumbents to start clamoring for help. And then, of course, you know, broadly speaking, it also, it also, uh, these numbers are just kind of, uh, we have plenty of polling data points at this point to to demonstrate that, that Donald Trump's political standing has fallen in recent months and that he is, as of this moment, losing the election. These House districts that you're describing kind of illustrate a little bit of the why. It's just that the, the like, total turnoff in to Trump in in some of these suburbs where he probably benefited from kind of ancestral Republican support in in, in twenty sixteen. These are places where, you know, the, the GOP has 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 long been based. Yeah, I think that's right. And the GOP has so many seats based in the suburbs that like there is this idea that twenty eighteen was just the beginning, right? So like Orange County and Texas completely, you know, wilted away for them. But they're, I mean, they hold suburban seats everywhere in Missouri, in Ohio, in North Carolina, um, in Arizona. And I don't think Donald Trump's margin there means much to the Democrats right now. Like they're going really aggressively after seats he won by so much because they see those coalitions falling apart. And and those coalitions are also falling apart for for Trump himself. Not that he's going to lose Indiana necessarily. I mean, I suppose it's possible. It's, well, it's probably not possible. 
Um, we've we've come a long way since Obama won it in in two thousand eight, but the but it just shows how kind of the 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 patterns and the, and the coalitions of the two parties are just changing rapidly before our eyes. That like you said before, that some of these political maps that were drawn to kind of produce a guaranteed result less than ten years ago are now producing the opposite result just because of the the change in coalitions. I'm curious, Ali, what does this what does all this mean for uh, Kevin McCarthy? He's the new uh, House Minority Leader. He he took over the Republican conference after Paul Ryan left as as Speaker uh, in in 2018. Uh, he's known to be pretty close with Trump. Uh, what what does it all mean from his perspective? Yeah. So I mean, I think he's really trying to prove himself, and his messaging is like very forcefully that the majority's in play. And so I think we're starting to hear some people, you know, like question whether that's the right attitude to take or question, you know, whether or not he's going to put resources in the right place, right? So he's, you know, really big on, uh, he's a big candidate recruiter and he's big on touting candidates. And he loves to talk about, you know, the veterans, the candidates of color, the women they've recruited. And right now, NRCC and CLF, I think, have like a combined six million in TV reservations to help Wesley Hunt, who's this, um, you know, former Apache helicopter pilot. He's African-American, really great pedigree. But that district, this is the Houston suburbs, is moving so, so quickly away from Republicans. This is one that Dem- the Democrats won in 2018, right, that they took away. Yes, Lizzie Fletcher won yeah. it, um, you know, by, by a pretty sizable margin from John Culberson. And, you know, again, this was not a district that had ever voted for a Democrat, you know, even really at the state legislative level or at the congressional level. But all of a sudden, I mean, it's just it's zooming. And there are, you know, privately Republicans who say, you know, can we afford to put six million to try to win back this seat that's moving so quickly away from us? Or should we spread that out in a bunch of smaller markets, try to shore up some people who might be dragged down by a bad environment? And that's, you know, a McCarthy and like a House leadership decision. Right. And and of course, you know McCarthy's kind of coming into uh, the, the the leadership of his his party from kind of an unusual position. He was almost speaker uh, in in 2015, and he kind of got derailed for for a number of reasons. We don't need to get into all of them, but partially because he didn't have the best relationship with kind of the hard right of the Republican conference. Yeah, that's right. And I think he always sort of has to probably do some like in member maintenance, you know, to keep members happy. Um, but at the same time, wants to project like, you know, this ability to come back to where they were, right, to take back the suburbs and, um, and, and to have control of the house. I think the fear is that if they lose seats, the cycle Republicans, which they very well could, then then it becomes, you know, maybe more than a one cycle project to climb out of the majority. So I think some of his critics may have that same big picture in mind, but they say, you know what, this is a bad environment. We need to play defense. We need to limit our losses. It may not be popular, you know, right now, but it'll be more popular in the long run, especially because we have this redistricting cycle coming up. If we lose a bunch of members right before they redraw the maps, you know, does that make it harder for them to come back or for someone to replace them? The thing that kind of makes this especially tricky, it seems to me, for House Republicans in some of these districts, for them kind of like managing the fact that there are still, you know, Democrats are maybe still making some gains in, in these these suburbs, is that it seems really hard to separate yourself from Donald Trump if you're if you're one of these candidates. And both because the you know the situation in these primaries, like we talked about with Nels, is that kind of everything is revolving around him 
and you know proving how close you are to him and how much you believe in in what he's saying and and even in some of his proving like attitudinally that you act like Donald Trump but you know at the same time in the general elections there's you know obviously some voters are are turned off by Trump right now but any attempt to kind of separate from him is greeted with backlash yeah i think like one interesting trend we've seen in 2020 and maybe also in 2018 is that like there's not an easy it's not as easy to pivot from like your primary rhetoric to your general rhetoric because your the whole republican party is just like this cult of personality around trump so it's so stark for you to say you know trump 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 i support him i support everything and then to you know a month after the primary try to run in a general where you know you can have independence and you know i think like the general idea has been to say, you know, I really like President Trump. I support his work on the economy. I have a slightly different tone. That was kind of like the pre-coronavirus take. That was, that was like a 2018 take also. Yeah. It didn't really work. It didn't work. Yeah. Well, and, and like, just because it didn't work in 2018, I feel like the, you know, maybe actually journalists have a bad habit of saying like, oh, if you lost the election, then that means nothing you did worked. And that's obviously not true. Right. And so like, may, you know, ob- obviously, like, I'm sure this helped them to some extent, but it didn't help them keep the house. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I think we're just in such a different spot where Trump's tone and rhetoric on coronavirus is like, you know, more offensive or more problematic to a larger group of people than just those who didn't like his tweets or you know, didn't like his tone or style at a press conference. Everyone's tuning in now. And it's such a life and death health issue. That's a really good point. Broadly, Allie, what, what do you think the long term effects of of what we're what we're seeing here is going to be the fact that it looks like not to say that they will lose it but it looks like republicans do still have you know some some turf to lose in the suburbs even after that big 2018 election what what do you take from that like what does the party look like after all these people leave yeah what do both parties look like yeah i mean it's interesting because i feel like i've kind of had this like my biggest take on how the republican party is changing is like a lot of these like safe seat primaries, right? Because that's like, you're the Trumpiest person and that's what you need to be to win the primary. And then you get that seat and it's so Republican that you'll have it for years and years and years. So I've always kind of thought that like all of these Republican retirements and safe seats actually might shape the party um, in like a more meaningful way than the people in the swing Mm. seats, because those will probably be up for bat um, every year. And if you think about some of the people who have retired from Congress, like um, Mac Thornberry, John Shimkus, Susan Brooks, like these were some of the people who broke with Trump um, on policy issues. The, 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 the people you're describing, these are people who, who maybe first ran, I mean, I don't know their, their individual histories of all of them, but like when they were running in Republican primaries to, to get that seat in the first place, those were safe seats. And, and the way you did it was by being like the most chamber of commerce person right and now you you win the safe well first of all the safe seats are in different places yeah and you win them by being the most trumpy i mean i always go back to like think about two members who lost in 2018 pete sessions and daryl isa they their seats moved so quickly away from them that they had to run in different you know safe republican districts to come back to congress neither of them thought it was worth it to try to run again in the seat that in daryl isa's case he retired from in pete sessions case he lost because they saw no path back. Yeah, you know, th- this situation kind of reminds me of this, I don't know if you call it a theory or what, but something I've thought about the the 2010 election for a while and the way the way that 
just how how ruthlessly Republicans beat Democrats in rural areas, like almost like kind of wiping out the Democratic congressional delegation from rural seats. And I think that it was a reflection of how the parties were realigning. But I also think that the act of of wiping out the Democratic members of Congress in these areas probably accelerated realignment a little bit too, because the Democratic Party lost like its local ambassador to both, you know, be there in that district and talking about these issues and uh, talking about their issues and and promoting their party and also going back to Washington and talking about it's like, hey, here's what the voters in my district think is important and and here's what we should be talking about. And and so I think it becomes kind of a uh, like, you know, a little bit of a, a, a circular thing where, where these actions like speed up. And, and I, I just wonder, you know, if, if Democrats are able to to actually like carve more territory out of the suburbs in 2020, does this just accelerate the realignment of these parties even more because the Republican Party that remains becomes less responsive to the concerns of, of voters in those areas? I don't know. Yeah, because if you think about 2010, I mean, like, Democrats did not get a lot of those seats back, right? Like they lost them and then they were gone. And so, yeah, like the, the 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 House majority they ended up winning back looked nothing like the majority they they had previously held, which I think a lot of people thought it's like okay, you know, like we we need to claw back what we lost in order to get back in power, and then it turned out it was no, it was a completely different path. Yeah, exactly. And so if you lose all of these seats, like how many of them are gone. And I think the difference now is that these shifts are happening so rapidly that no one knows how to predict, like, does, as we were talking about Wesley Hunt and Lizzie Fletcher, like, does that snap back because it was so historically Republican? Or has it moved away so quickly that it's just gone and it, and it happened in, like, the blink of an eye? Yeah. And the other question will be, kind of to come back to redistricting, is like, how do they draw these districts when you just don't know what these sort of like white affluent, traditionally Republican voters look like in a post-Trump era? Like, do they revert back to the Republican Party under a different standard there? Or are they lost forever? Well, I think some of this is happening regardless, but I think some of it depends on like who future presidents are. I think presidents basically kind of determine the the party coalitions in, in a very powerful way, it turns out. Um, or at least they can act as accelerants on stuff that was already happening. By the way, I, I love the fact that you're bringing up this this Texas district, the, the Wesley Hunt, the Republican challenger, Lizzie Fletcher, the Democrat now, because this is, I mean, when you're talking about ancestral Republican, this was like a district that was, that George H.W. Bush broke into politics in, in like the 60s, I think, right? Like that's, that's how ancestral we're talking about. This yeah. is like literally a different generation of the, of the Republican Party. And Pierce Bush, his grandson, actually oh my gosh. initially yes. thought about running in that seat, his grandfather's old seat, and he didn't, and he ended up running against, to bring this full circle, Troy Nels. And it didn't go well. It went horribly for him, yeah. He was, like, the candidate that Republicans wanted because he was this, like, in-name-style DNA, a Bush Republican. He tried to run as this compassionate conservative and echo that, like, tone and rhetoric that... Republicans there initially liked, but he was just caught in such a bind because people didn't trust that he was, he was trying to be like both, you know, supportive of Trump and a compassionate conservative. And I think people felt you, you couldn't really be both. That's fantastic. Well, there are Republicans who said, you know, you're not really supportive of Trump. Look at your uncle, look at your grandfather. And then I think the people who like his, that kind of like ideology, just weren't voting in the Republican primary anymore. They were voting for a Democrat. That really does bring it full circle. I love it when guests do that. It means I don't have to, to figure out how to do it. 
<laughs> I mean, that that's kind of the story that we're talking about today in a big old nutshell. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk through it with us, Allie. Of course. It was so much fun. You'll scrub it from the internet later, right? <laughs> All right. Here are three more big stories that caught the eye this week. Basically, the bad news summary. Uh, number one. We obviously knew it was bad, but we have a new number to pin on the economy as of Thursday morning. The Commerce Department released its estimate that the U.S. gross domestic product shrank by 9.5% in the second quarter of this year. And that, that's a record. That's from the spring, which which started just as coronavirus forced the, the first wave of lockdowns around the country. Now, months later, we're still dealing with fast-rising case counts. The daily death count is on the rise, and that's going to delay any kind of recovery from this. Uh, And so we found ourselves minutes after this news broke on Thursday morning that President Trump tweets out the suggestion that the election maybe ought to be delayed. I think he put three question marks there. That would take an act of Congress, so it's not going to happen. But he is already outlining the structure of an argument that he lost under unfair circumstances if he does, in fact, go on to lose re-election in November. Uh, Number two. In Congress, we talked last week about the work on that new COVID relief package that wasn't going very well. Well, it's still not going very well. And the White House and Senate Republicans even have been having trouble getting on the same page about what ought to be in the thing. Meanwhile, uh, slamming the metaphor home, I think, uh, for everyone about dysfunction in the Capitol and government, coronavirus is affecting day-to-day life on the Hill more. Speaker Nancy Pelosi has implemented a mask rule, and Congressman Louis Gohmert of Texas tested positive this week. That has sparked some stories from Hill aides to Politico about members of Congress, some members of Congress discouraging mask wearing among their staff, having staff work from the office instead of teleworking. Keep an eye out on Politico Playbook and on our website for more on that in the coming days. And number three, here's a pretty weird political story. A a Democratic-linked super PAC is airing ads ahead of the Kansas Senate primary attacking one of the Republicans. And I'm putting an attacking in air quotes that you can't see right now. They're calling him too conservative and so on in these ads. It's the latest example of something we're seeing more and more in the super PAC era, and that's attempts to meddle in the other party's primary to get a less electable candidate nominated. And so in this case, in Kansas, that's Chris Kobach, who's the former Kansas Secretary of State. He's a longtime Trump ally who's running for an open Senate seat that should be pretty safely Republican. Except Kobach is very controversial, and he lost the 2018 governor's race in Kansas to a Democrat. So Senate Republicans are worried that he'd put this race in jeopardy as well. Democrats evidently agree. The thing about it is these meddling things almost never work. It's like sometimes just a little too cute and voters in the local media see through it. But I guess the calculation is that when it works, it's worth all that money that you sank into the failed attempts elsewhere. So that primary is on Tuesday, probably maybe the last big Senate primary that's that's up in the air. And so we will uh, be keeping an eye out for what happens. All right, that's our show. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Amond. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much for listening. Have you guys ever had kabocha squash? Oh, they're fantastic. Kabocha, kabocha. It's like denser than like a butternut squash. And so it just gets like very creamy when you roast it. It's fantastic. It's good for, good for Thai curry.